Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Live from New York, I'm Allison Kosick in for Julia Chatterley. This is First Move, and here's your need to know. Omicron spread. World leaders plan more restrictions as the variant surges. Beijing boycott. The Women's Tennis Association suspends tournaments in China over concern for Peng Shui. And SPAC Grab, Asia's super app Grab, prepares for a $40 billion Nasdaq debut. I will be talking with the president. It's Thursday. Let's make a move. Welcome back to First Move and welcome back to Volatility on the Markets. What started off as a very promising session on Wall Street Wednesday ended up deep in the red. Wild swings have been par for the course over the last few days, and that will likely continue in the near term with uncertainty over the impact of the Omicron variant, high inflation and supply chain issues. President Joe Biden tried to reassure Americans Wednesday, saying shelves will be stocked for the holiday season. And he's set to outline in the coming hours the next steps to combat COVID-19 in the winter months. Expect tightening of rules around testing when traveling and a further push for people to get vaccinated. Investors remain on edge with futures pointing to a better open for blue chips than tech. Travel-related stocks are the early gainers. In Europe, which had already been struggling with a surge in Delta variant cases even before the new variant was discovered, concerns over potential new lockdowns, they're dominating the picture. The DAX is the laggard with more restrictions on the way, and more on that in a moment. In Asia, the session was mixed. The Kospi had a second strong day in a row, but the Nikkei and the Shanghai composite fell as China struggles to contain a new COVID outbreak. Now let's get right to the drivers. The U.S., India and Greece have joined the growing list of countries that have confirmed cases of the Omicron variant. Dr. Anthony Fauci says the U.S. patient is fully vaccinated and had recently traveled to South Africa. At least 30 countries and territories have now identified cases of the variant. In just the last few minutes, German Chancellor Angela Merkel and her successor Olaf Scholz announced that Germany will ban unvaccinated people from accessing all but the most essential businesses to curb the spread of COVID-19. Fred Pleiken joins me now. Fred, this news breaking now. How is this going to be enforced? Yeah, Allison, I mean, this is something that really just broke a couple of minutes ago. And essentially what businesses are going to have to do is they're going to have to check vaccine certificates for people uh, who come into into their stores or wherever else uh, those businesses uh, might be. In part, that is already something that is going on in parts of Germany, for instance, in some sports facilities in certain states in this country. It is already the case that you have to show your vaccine certificate. Also, normally in restaurants as well, uh, those vaccine certificates are very often checked. So that's something that is going to be the case on a broad scale in all of Germany. 
Germany now. And the German chancellor even going a step further and saying that in areas where there is a lot of COVID-19, where there are a lot of new daily infections, that businesses can go a step further and the state governments can go a step further and not only demand that only vaccinated people can uh, enter those places, but that only vaccinated people who have been tested uh, can, uh, with a fresh test can, can access those areas. So you can really see the Germans really clamping down, if you will, on uh, unvaccinated people. There's a flurry of other restrictions as well, for instance, uh, for public gatherings, but also for private gatherings, where once again, unvaccinated people uh, will be limited to amount of other people that they can have contact with in those settings. So the German government really saying they want people to get their vaccinations. Of course, one of the things about uh, the situation here in Europe is that Germany has one of the lowest vaccination rates in all of Western Europe and has really been struggling uh, to get people uh, to get their jabs and has now also, and this is also something that Angela Merkel announced and her designated successor, uh, Olaf Scholz as well, they really want to get that booster campaign going. They say that uh, their target is to try and get 30 million booster shots administered by the end of this year. So that's a pretty tall order, but the German government really saying that it's going to get very, very serious about enforcing all of those rules and try and make sure that they come to terms with this latest wave of coronavirus infections, which has really hit this country so very hard, Allison. Yeah, we, we shall see if these new harsh restrictions actually motivate people uh, to go ahead and get vaccinated. Fred, Pli mm. Fred Pleiken, thanks so much. In South Africa, the Omicron variant is rapidly becoming the main coronavirus variety. In a sample of 249 tests from Guateng province, which includes Johannesburg, 74 percent of sequencing checks were identified as a new variant. Eleni Giocos is there for us. Eleni, great to see you. I'm curious if you're hearing that whether any of these cases where you are, uh, what kind of symptoms they're showing? Are they showing, you know, stronger yeah. symptoms or more mild symptoms with this new variant? And that's exactly what they're trying to ascertain. So we know that the, with the genomic sequencing that is occurring that has verified that of the sample that you allude to, 74% is the Omicron variant, whether this has resulted in more severe illness or an increase in hospitalization rates. Now, from what we understand from health authorities, and remember, this is still very much in a situation where they're collating data to understand the variant, that the hospitalization rates in South Africa is still very much uh, a among the unvaccinated. The anecdotal evidence that we're seeing right now that it does not cause severe illness for people under the age of 40. But when you look at the older demographic, that is the big question. The other one is transmissibility and, of course, vaccine efficacy. Right now, we're seeing evidence that vaccines are still working against the Omicron variant. It's also important to note, and we have to look at the daily infection rates. We've seen a doubling occurring over a week. Now, the numbers are very low in comparison to what you're seeing in the likes of Europe. We're talking about 8,500 positive cases in the last 24 hours. We're talking about 28 deaths uh, in the last 24 hours. So again, very low levels, but it isn't anticipated that it will grow further. Um, the surge that we're seeing is what experts are saying as we head into the fourth wave in South Africa. Gauteng, as you mentioned, seems to be the epicenter of the outbreak at this point in time. Uh, the earliest identified case, Alison, was on the 8th of November. You're seeing a lot of backtracking in terms of sequencing that's occurring not only in South Africa, but many countries around the world. And that's why you're seeing uh, cases that are being identified in many regions around the world. The um, Africa CDC has also come out 
with a statement today that's saying 20, Africa as a whole has seen a 20% increase in new COVID cases. And that's mostly been driven by an increase in positive cases in Southern Africa, particularly in South Africa. And there's a concern that this has been driven by the Omicron variant. But again, we're talking about data that needs to be collated. The Africa CDC says that they hope as this data comes to the fore and we understand more about the Omicron variant, that we'll see a lifting of these very stringent travel bans that have been implemented against the region. And of course, there's been a lot of um, resentment towards this from African leaders, from scientists saying that these travel bans hold absolutely no benefit and they're discriminatory and also Malawan president called it Afrophobic, not to mention that this is going to have an extremely catastrophic impact on many of these economies that were really battling uh, to uh, you know, emerge out of the, the, the last two years, Alison, where we've seen enormous pain. And you've got to keep this in mind that um, African countries do not have the fiscal space, do not have the monetary resources to be able to pump stimulus into their economies like what we've seen in the US and in Europe as well. Yeah, many scientists saying it's not if, but when we see this new variant actually make its way around the globe. Uh, one case already found here in the United States in San Francisco, California. Elena Kyokos, thanks very much. Grab Southeast Asia's so-called super app making its big market debut here in New York. It comes after a record SPAC merger that values the company at about $40 billion. Selena Wang has the details. For this popular noodle restaurant in Bangkok, the coronavirus pandemic posed a major threat to business. 40% of the dine-in customers disappeared. We were saved by joining delivery services, the owner says. It has covered what we have lost. It has sailed us through this crisis, but with some adjustment. The restaurant says most of its customers use Grab, a self-proclaimed super app based in Singapore. It offers ride hailing, food delivery, digital payments and financial services. Grab says its business has grown during the pandemic. Each month, 25 million users make a transaction on the app across eight countries. Founded as a taxi booking app in 2012 by two Harvard Business School classmates from Malaysia, Grab quickly attracted a bevy of big league investors. The founders wanted the company to make money, but also have a positive social impact on the region. Usually, if you think about it, you know, rich people, they take the money, they put it in a, a compounding interest. Today, you give it to the bottom of the pyramid. They are growing it. They're spending it. They're developing it. They're upskilling. I think that's the power of the ability to capture capital, uh, use human capital and convert it and enable millions. Right? That. I think is the power of the gig economy. But like other ride-hailing apps, Grab has faced protests from drivers seeking higher pay. Grab argues its local know-how provided an edge in building relationships with customers, drivers, and governments. That strategy seems to have paid off. In 2018, rival Uber quit eight countries in the region, selling its business to Grab in exchange for a stake in the company. Yet it still faces heavy competition in some markets from Indonesia's Gojek. Like many venture-backed startups, Grab has yet to turn a profit. When it lists under the symbol Grab on the NASDAQ, the deal will be the biggest so far to involve a SPAC, or Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Under a SPAC deal, a private entity merges with a shell company that is already publicly traded. It's a way to go public without all the regulation and uncertainty of a traditional IPO. 
Grab's deal, backed by Altimeter Growth, valued the company at nearly $40 billion, a huge valuation built bit by bit from millions of motorcycle taxi rides and noodle sales across Southeast Asia. Selena Wang, CNN, Tokyo. And joining me now is president of Grab, Ming Ma. Fantastic to have you with us today. Thank you for having me, Allison. And congratulations on Grab's public debut happening in about 20 minutes. I'm curious how your company is going to use the money raised today. Grab is receiving $4.5 billion as part of this deal. Well, first of all, we're very excited and very honored uh, to be listing today. I think this is the largest U.S. listing for a Southeast Asia company. And it is an incredible honor for us to be representing the entire region, particularly the tech sector. In terms of how we'll be using the capital, first of all, we'll be very capital efficient and very deliberate about capital allocation. But we are very excited about three main growth areas for the business. First is to continue growing our deliveries business. So whenever a consumer is thinking about anything to eat, whether it's a restaurant meal, groceries to cook at home, or just snacks and drinks uh, at night, we want them to think of Grab first. The second is to continue driving financial inclusion across our entire business. And that's really along both the lines of affordability and accessibility of financial services for the masses. What this means to us is developing micro insurance products, micro lending products, and micro savings products. We're also very excited about the digital banking opportunity and turning banking into something that's as easy as ordering a ride. The last area that we're very excited about is to continue developing the infrastructure to support the rise of e-commerce, whether that's through our on-demand delivery network, the largest and the lowest cost network in the region, or it's through our buy now, pay later services. And, but you have your challenges. Analysts uh, with Moody's are saying your businesses are susceptible to intense competition, and there are uncertainties around Grab's ability to achieve profitability at this point. Talk with me about how you overcome this. Well, the key to, is our super app strategy, and that's how we've created resilience throughout the last 18, 24 months. Now, if you look at our markets today, we certainly have had uh, the, the blessing to compete with good competitors over the last nine, nine plus years. And I think competition is good for consumers. But today we are the only regional super app across Southeast Asia, and we're also the category leader in all of our three core segments from mobility to deliveries and financial services. And that's true, not just across the entire region, but also in some of our more competitive markets like Indonesia. And how we really got here was by really focusing on developing technology, investing into our tech stack, really investing into our shared driver fleet strategy, and really focused around having the lowest cost delivery network in the region, because we believe that the lowest cost, cost leadership is what drives category and market leadership. Fintech, obviously a challenging area for your business with Moody saying uh, that is really a drag on your profitability, kind of eating, eating your cash. How are you going to grow that area of the business? Well, first of all, I think um, profitability and growth are never mutually uh, exclusive. Uh, in fact, if you look at our Q3 now, we've had three record, uh, three consecutive quarters of record GMV growth while making very good strides uh, reaching profitability. In fact, in our most mature segments, ride-sharing, uh, we've been adjusted segment EBITDA profitable since Q4 2019. 
and we maintain that stance throughout all of COVID. Our deliveries business is obviously much younger, three years, but we're now break-even in a majority of our uh, markets. And financial services, while also quite young, is a key enabler for our super app ecosystem. It's what drives the transactions across our platform and is ultimately uh, will follow the same path as our other segments. Mm -hmm. Any um, any plans to expand into the United States? Uh, we are fair, completely focused around Southeast Asia and the opportunity here. Um, the region is one of the most attractive digital ecosystems and market mm -hmm. opportunities on a global scale. Um, penetration rates are tiny compared to the similar opportunities in the U.S. or China. And we're just going to stay very laser focused around Southeast Asia and continuing to drive our super app strategy and the digital opportunities uh, in the region. You know, a lot of companies, they haven't been able to do what you do. Um, they haven't been as successful. What is it about uh, what Grab does to bring people into the formal economy? I think it all starts with our mission. Um, Grab was founded as a company focused around a double bottom line. And what that means to us is delivering financial profits as well as true social impact. And this is what has really been the ethos of the company from day one. It's what allows us to partner with the governments and the regulators in each of our countries mm -hmm. and really, really around nation building and creating opportunities to uplift informal workers into the formal economy. Okay, Ming Ma, president of Grab, congratulations again on your public debut today and thanks for your time. Thank you so much. Still to come on First Move, fueling a cleaner future. The CEO of a Rwandan electric bike startup on his plan to change the way Africa travels. And investing in the age of inflation. Ray Dalio, the billionaire founder of the world's biggest hedge fund, gives us his advice. And these are the stories making headlines around the world. The International Olympic Committee says that it held a second video call Wednesday with Chinese tennis star Peng Shuai and that she reiterated that she's safe. Peng vanished from public view for more than two weeks after publicly accusing China's former vice premier of coercing her into sex three years ago. CNN's David Culver joins us live now from Beijing. David, news about this second call comes one day after the Women's Tennis Association suspended all tournaments in China. And that was a huge move, Alice. And when you think certainly from yeah. first, a business perspective, I mean, you're talking about a, a deal that is estimated to be about a billion dollars over 10 years. And then if you just think from a geopolitical perspective, to stand up against China, as many are seeing this to be perceived as, well, it, it's significant, especially since most companies don't go that far. Certainly the NBA uh, didn't want to venture into that. So the WTA, the Women's Tennis Association, under its chairman and CEO, Steve Simon, doing what many believe no one really had the confidence to do, and that is to challenge China on this. For its part, China is not backing down. In fact, we have seen a new rush of uh, really crit uh, attacks, I should say, towards uh, the U.S., towards the WTA in particular, saying that they're politicizing this, saying that this is a representation of desires to really uh, put the Chinese people 
in a containment measure. That's how it's often seen, that anything that's done from the West is to contain China. And so they're very negative in, in how they're perceiving this. What's also rather interesting, Allison, is you're not going to find any news of this uh, situation here in China domestically, but you are seeing state media report about it on their Western media feed. So they have Twitter, they have Facebook, and that's where they're putting this information out. What's also worth noting is that folks here, while it's not widely talked about, there are certain attempts, it seems, to discuss this and even show support for Peng Shui. And we're seeing that on other threads that may be somewhat related to tennis or a tennis player's retirement, for example. So they'll post that on Weibo, the Chinese social media site, and then you'll see, as a part of that under the comment section, people weighing in and having conversations about Peng Shui. They don't last long. They're quickly censored, scrubbed clean, and they'll have to move on to another forum to try to have that conversation. But it shows there is an attempt to try to continue on with this dialogue and, and push forward some sort of support uh, in what's now been taking place here. And that is really going to likely continue if the WTA continues to press forward with this, which it seems that they're determined to do. I mean, the suspension of all tournaments for the WTA is going to have ramifications here. Now, certainly right now, it's happening amidst COVID-19 measures, and so most everything of public gatherings has been shut down or rescheduled or postponed, but they're certainly looking long-term because next year, the WTA finals expected to have returned to Shenzhen in southern China. These are events that get a lot of attention here, hold a lot of pride, and now, of course, will not be taking place should the suspension stay in place. And it seems the WTA is also challenging what the IOC is saying. The International Olympic Committee saying that they had another video call with Peng Shui yesterday. They say they offered wide-ranging support and that they're confident that she's at least being taken care of, she's in a comfortable situation, and that they'll continue the dialogue and hope to be with her in person when you have the Olympics here in February. So they plan to be here, of course, early next year as part of that. All of this, though, is not settling well uh, back really in, in the tennis world. Uh, you have a lot of folks who are stepping up in support of the WTA and their bold move. You have people like Chris Everett, you have Billie Jean King, you have Novak Djokovic. And so big names are weighing in, but China, for its part, not backing down. And, and really, Allison, it seems that they're going to stay this course for the near future. Yeah, and I'm sure you'll stay on top of this story. David Culver in Beijing, thanks so much. U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken met with Russian Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov on Thursday amid rising concern in, in NATO over Russian troop movements near the border with Ukraine. It came shortly after Blinken met Ukraine's foreign minister at a summit in Sweden. Blinken said the U.S. and NATO remain committed to Ukraine's territorial integrity. CNN's Matthew Chance is in Ukraine and has been following all of these diplomatic exchanges. So I'm curious what came out of this meeting. Uh, did Secretary Blinken deliver a message to get the Russians to stand down? Um, hi, Alison. Well, I think you know what, what we know in terms of the outcome uh, of this meeting, uh, as far as the statements that have been released uh, by the from the State Department side, is that I think they phrased it: no clear path has been set out to resolve this this issue at yet. But they promised that they would remain in close diplomatic contact contact to try and you know kind of 
resolve this and to try and get some solution that would avert a full-scale military crisis in this region. I, I certainly know that going into that meeting with the US Secretary of State, Antony Blinken, the, the Russian Foreign Minister, Sergei Lavrov, was you know, pretty strident in what he wanted uh, from the US side and from the side of the US allies in terms of assurances about uh, Russian security. Take a listen to what Sergei Lavrov had to say. Considering the Ukrainian issue, the fact that everyone is talking about uh, the escalation of tensions uh, in Europe on the border between Russia and Ukraine, well, you know very well how we treat this. We, as President Putin stated, do not want any conflicts. But if our NATO partners have stated that no one has a right to dictate to a country that would like to join NATO whether it can do or not, we can say that every country is able to define its own interests to guarantee the security. Alison, thanks very much. Well, um uh, the um, uh, the Ukrainian position on the I mean, you know, look what the Russians have done is they have called uh, for NATO not to be expanded any further east towards their borders and they're very concerned about the military challenge that is posed by the US and NATO allies putting you know offensive weapons uh, systems into Ukraine as well that represents a military threat to them and so you know for Moscow it's become um, an increasingly you know thick red line. For that, that's not to be crossed. And, and it's one of the reasons, perhaps, why there is so much sabre-rattling going on at now. As you heard, the uh, Ukrainian position on that is that, look, you know, when it comes to NATO expansion, Russia doesn't have a voice. If, if Ukraine wants to have negotiations about entering Ukraine, that's Ukraine's sovereign interest. And in the words of the Ukrainian foreign minister yesterday, I think, he said that any uh, calls or any demands by Russia for a limit to be put on that is illegitimate. Alison. Okay, thanks for all of that great context. Matthew Chance, live for us in Kiev. Thank you. And you're watching First Move. The Market Open is next. Welcome back to First Move. I'm Alison Kosick. The opening bell has rung and trading on Wall Street has begun. This is how the markets are doing. Positive sentiment is waning, though, um, and uncertainty amid uncertainty caused by the Omicron variant. In the last hour, weekly jobless claim numbers came in broadly in line with expectations. 222,000 Americans filed first-time claims for unemployment insurance. That's slightly higher than the previous week's record low. Crucial data coming on Friday with the monthly new job numbers giving a check on the state of the U.S. economic recovery. Let's look at some of the biggest movers at the open. Shares in the cloud data company Snowflake jumping after its results beat expectations. Boeing is surging after China's aviation regulator cleared the Boeing 737 MAX to return to flying. And Apple is down on reports. Demand for the iPhone 13 is slowing. EV maker Polestar gearing up to unveil its three-year business plan. The carmaker founded by Volvo and China's Geely says t- Tesla is its only rival as an EV maker with mass production and global reach. These next three years will be key to proving that case. Polestar is set to go public via a SPAC deal that values it at $20 billion. It's also set to launch three new EVs before 2025. And joining me now is Thomas Ingenloff. He is the CEO 
of Polestar. Great to have you on the show today. Good morning. Good nice morning, Thomas. Here. So this, this week you're in New York City, and right behind you you're showing off uh, the Precept EV, uh, the concept car, but something tells me there's much more to this road show that you're on, more than just the concept car's debut. Yeah, indeed. And when you say this uh, show car standing here, it was a show car a year ago. Since then, we actually made it part of our product portfolio and the Polestar Precept will be the Polestar 5 that we will um, roll out in 2024. Till then, two other cars in between. And that means really in the next three years, three new cars coming out year after year. So uh, a big, nice product expansion ahead of us. Yeah, and, and you know, to add to your product expansion, there are plans for Polestar, as I said, to go public via SPAC, being listed on the NASDAQ under the symbol PSNY. Talk with me a bit about how this combination will, you know, propel Polestar forward. Does this uh, combination pave the way for Polestar to even become the next Tesla? Is that what you want? Well, our plan is obviously to be that independent strong company that we have in in mind for Polestar and um, finding now this Spark merger together with a very, very solid, experienced uh, Gorst Guggenheim um, makes, of course, a big, big step for us. On one hand, for the funding to really give us access to the capital market, our our expansion plan, of course, needs that, that access. On the other hand as well, when it means to um, growing up as a company and being recognized um, as somebody who is a serious player in the game. And the EV space is certainly, it, it's very crowded. Plus, Polestar is not exactly a household name, at least here in the U.S. So along with that, the, the competition is fierce. What are Polestar's plans to create more brand awareness? Yeah, our footprint here in the U.S., is of course of importance. We made a big, big step in 21 now, expanding from four spaces, locations, all the way up to 25 by the end of this year. This is of course the foundation of, to build brand awareness here. Um, but let's face it, we are a company that is in three, in the three big regions in Asia, in Europe and in the US, delivering 29,000 cars already this year. So what, we are a company that's up and running and um, that volume will grow over the years but we proved that delivering to customers having satisfied customers having a great product out in the market is mm -hmm. something that uh, we we don't have in the plans it's actually something that is happening here right now right right now i know that you attended the cop 26 climate conference and when you were there you were quoted as saying that car companies are still talking about selling petrol and diesel cars until 2040. do you think part of the struggle with you know regular car manufacturers is that there's a high there's such a high price point on these evs that it winds up pricing out just so many people like your your evs are for the premium luxury market it makes it difficult let's just say for everyday Americans to be able to afford an EV. The introduction of this pass towards zero emissions, of course, goes through the premium, the luxury market. This is where all high tech, like airbags, uh, safety belts, all of that happened that way. And today already, 
the cost of a combustion engine car, if you really are honest about uh, what it what it means in CO2, is already today higher than for an electric car. So I think we just have to face reality. And I think the market will prove anyway a much, much faster transition towards electrification. Okay, well, your cars look amazing. I can't wait to see them on the road and maybe drive one myself one day. <laughs> Thomas Ingloth, CEO of Polestar, thanks very much. Thank you. Thanks for the compliment. You got it. Uh, coming up on First Move, Omicron fuels market volatility as investors struggle to assess the potential impact of the new variant. We've got uh, some advice for you from billionaire Ray Dalio next. Welcome back. We've seen volatility all week on Wall Street, but despite the swings, billionaire investor Ray Dalio says inflation is killing investors who sit on the sidelines holding cash. It's part of his new book called The Changing World. Take a listen. The things about it as an investor at this stage is to understand, for example, the consequences of money printing. Okay, you don't get richer when they're because of money printing. It produces inflation and it moves through the system to change asset prices in a certain way. So I explain how that works. And so, uh, for example, you don't want cash. You don't want, people think that the safest investment is to hold money in cash. It's the worst investment because you lose constantly to inflation. Something like three, four, five percent a year would be the tax and your money will not be worth so to be able to know how to develop a balanced portfolio, so not in any one thing, but to achieve balance and diversification is a very, very important thing. So as an investor, I think, so there's many things that are in the book about how to do those kinds of things. Let's just for, pause on that, if we may, and talk sure. about that. Because constantly uh, we are told, as you, as you said, you know, diversification diversification in portfolios, in investment uh, assets. Now, for somebody who is a, a large-scale investor like yourself, that has, a that has access to enormous um, options, op opportunities in different areas, but most of our viewers will, say, will be looking and saying, all right, Ray Dalio, tell me what does it mean? I've got a pension fund, I've got a bit of money in the bank, I've got a house, a car, and a bit of savings. What do you mean for somebody like me to diversify? Well, if you watch the market every day, that you will see, notice what goes up and what goes down and the relationship between them. For example, you'll notice that when uh, the, the pandemic comes along and the stock market goes down, that the bond market goes up, and that the gold changes in this way. Just watch how those movements occur relative to each other. And that gives you a sense of how that balance is going to occur. There's a mistake of a lot of people to think that one asset class is better than an other asset class and put all your money in that. Um, markets, if one asset class was better than another asset class, then everybody would make a lot of money because all you do is go shortly at one that's less good and you go long the other. Markets have a way of handicapping. It's like horses at a ho horse race, you know. Um, the favorite to win is not going to bet on the favorite to win won't improve your odds any better than betting on the least likely right, to win right. because the odds get changed. And so to know how know that and to be able to achieve that balance is an important thing and I won't be able to cover it and I probably already took took long. On that point, are you 
optimistic at the moment. Is there cause for optimism? The, as the Omicron came along, everybody's walking around, and I'm not asking about Omicron per se, but everybody's walking around with an air of the sky's falling or worse, this is never going to end. We've got a chase for yield in the market, even at low interest rates, even if they go up. Is there room for optimism? Um, I would say that if people understand that and that dynamic, there is plenty of room for optimism, but it is really, you need to understand those lessons of history and see those patterns and understand what we're doing over and over again. And then related to that, there are, although those first four that I mentioned are sources of great concern, um, but man's adaptability and technology and creativity. And so if man can reflect on how do we want to be with each other and how do I want to take care of my finances in a way, the capacity certainly exists. Great discussion there. That was Ray Dalio speaking with Richard Quest. Dalio's new book is called The Changing World Order. Coming up after the break, our startup star replacing petrol engines with electric, one motorbike at a time, Ampersand's mission to bring a green energy revolution to Africa. Let's take another look at the U.S. markets, and we are seeing some recovery from Wednesday's falls in the early trading here. The Dow is seeing the biggest gains with Boeing, consumer spending, and retail staples among the pace setters here. Oil prices, they're falling after OPEC Plus agreed to go ahead with plans to increase crude oil output in January. Taxi motorcycles remain a great way to get around in Africa. And in Rwanda, drivers are being offered a clean energy alternative to noisy, polluting petrol engines. Kigali-based startup Ampersand says their electric bikes emit 75 percent less carbon than traditional motorcycles with no tailpipe emissions. Drivers pay about $37 a week for a rent-to-own contract with swappable batteries costing about 25 percent less than fuel. Julia asked the founder and CEO to explain how it works on the ground. So we uh, exist to serve the large population of motorbike taxis that are operating in Africa. And the way that we do that is uh, with a network of battery swap stations uh, that are spread across the city. Um, So we build battery packs specifically to be cost competitive with fuel. And then we rent out these battery packs to these motorbike taxi drivers uh, from a network of swap stations. And that solves uh, two problems. One is the high upfront cost of the battery, especially a battery that's uh, robust enough to serve these drivers. It also means that they don't have to wait around recharging, uh, spending hours a day uh, when they should, should and want to be working. What about uh, maintenance costs and insurance and things? Can they get that with you as well? Yes, so the, the, we have a uh, package that we offer for maintenance that usually costs uh, about 20% less than the uh, and the typical cost of maintenance. I mean, uh, one one thing is that the drivers normally with a petrol bike have to do an oil change every every one or two weeks. Uh, ends up costing about $200 a year. You just don't need that with uh, with an electric motorbike. Uh, but the biggest savings are definitely uh, from the fuel cost. We're able to sell a motorbike also cheaper than a conventional uh, petrol motorbike. Um, uh, and, and not only that, but the motorbike itself actually has more power than a, than a petrol motorbike. And, and that comes from separating out that, that cost of the battery pack from the cost of the motorbike. So basically making 
the battery cost, not a hardware cost that's, say, uh, included in the cost when you buy a Tesla or, or a Rivian, mm. but it's actually a separate cost. It becomes an energy cost, a fuel cost. Think of it a bit like an electric gas bottle uh, that you just swap out and exchange. Okay, so who's making the bikes and who's making the batteries? I guess for you in particular, and we can talk about scaling up, but are there supply chain risks? Where is all this coming from? So the, there's a few different pieces. And, and because we were um, setting this up more or less from uh, from scratch, we had, to, had a whole ecosystem uh, to build. Uh, the motorcycles we still build ourselves. We use uh, components that we source from uh, from China. Mm. Uh, try to use as much off the shelf as possible, but there are changes that we've had to make. Uh, in, in time, what we actually hope to do is to work with the existing big uh, motorcycle manufacturers from India and from Japan who dominate the market here in, in, in Africa and focus ourselves on the energy network, and which we really see as the, our, our strong suit and the, the real value add. And so we build the battery packs ourselves here in, in Rwanda. Uh, we didn't actually originally set out to build the battery packs. We hoped we could also get those off the shelf. But what we soon discovered was that there aren't really a lot of battery packs out there that are built to be robust, to be used in a B2B application. So 150 kilometers a day, uh, day in, day out. And also so that the uh, cost per, per charge uh, ends up being cheaper than the cost of fuel, even when you add on the cost of electricity and the charging right. infrastructure. So that's why right. we ended up having to go and build uh, a battery pack ourselves. And that's um, what we've actually succeeded at doing. At the moment, Ampersand is a small scale operation, but Josh says they're well funded and have major growth ambitions into the wider continent. Take a listen. We currently have uh, just 60 motorbikes on the road. I've uh, been operating now, uh, some of them, uh, about 20 of them for over two years though, uh, day in, day out, uh, 2 million kilometers traveled, uh, well over 50,000 battery swaps uh, performed. And we have 8,000 drivers on, on our waiting list uh, ready, to, ready to take a bike. So uh, ah. people want it to, it, it works. And, and uh, the word of mouth has really gotten out there. We haven't done any advertising for that either. Uh, we're, what we're looking ahead to, uh, we're expanding now into Kenya, uh, so it's into a second market from, from here, our home base in, in Rwanda. There are about 5 million motorbike taxis across East Africa. Uh, we're looking at about 2030 to, to, to uh, see all of them electrified, uh, which would take about $3 billion in working capital, and that's far less than the $8 billion a year that these drivers will spend on, on fuel. Shorter term, we're looking at about 3,000 motorbikes in service by the end of next year to early in 2023. Five million motorbikes on the roads of East Africa. That gives you a sense of the numbers here. Um, government, government support clearly vital. And what more do you need? Because this is a cash intensive business, as I think you've alluded to as well. And you're doing this all yourself at the moment. Yeah, so we have already investment from uh, Total Energies, um, so Africa's also Africa's largest uh, fuel station operator, which is which is uh, really valuable in, in scaling this up rapidly. We also have strong uh, venture capital investment from uh, Intech VC from the Bay Area called uh, Ecosystem Integrity Fund. We're raising a Series B uh, next year, uh, hoping to get into the tens of millions uh, for that one. <laughs> um, but so there, there, there is a capital need for sure. Um, 
but uh, but it's it pales in comparison to the to the market opportunity, the scale of the market, and the need to uh, electrify uh, electrify the global south and not just the global north. Yeah. And actually, I I would contend that it's the global south. So it's particularly this two and three wheel vehicle segment that is actually the lowest hanging fruit when it comes to really pushing past that crucial magic line where, where an electric vehicle just makes pure economic sense uh, from day one on a really large scale. In the last part of the interview, Josh is keen to point out the cost savings to drivers and how that's lifting the quality of life for their families. Yes, yeah, so Rakuno was actually our very first driver. Um, he's uh, He's been riding an electric motorbike now for two years. Uh, just last week, he actually joined our team and does the quality control for the next generation of vehicles, uh, which we're building right now. We're building another 500 motorbikes in our factory here in Kigali right now. Uh, Rakundo's uh, in, in the image uh, there, you've got um, the, you can see he's uh, there with his family. He was able to put the roof on that house. He was able to uh, pave his floors, put another building um, on, on, on the same plot by some goats and chickens. I mean, it really makes, uh, has made a huge difference. Um, he tells us for, for his life um, and, and, it, and it, uh, it really hits home. I mean, the savings uh, for, for drivers like Rakundo are, are enormous because they spend so much money every year on fuel. Uh, Rakundo before would spend about $1,700 a year buying fuel. That's more than the cost of a new motorbike. And it's about three times more than his take home pay. Uh, so for him, just saving 25-30% on on fuel means uh, means uh, greatly, you know, hugely increasing his take-home income. And finally, on first move, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas here in New York City. It is so pretty. The holiday season has begun with the lighting of the Christmas tree at Rockefeller Center. The 79-foot-tall Norway spruce is decorated with 50,000 LED lights and a crystal star. When I see it, by the way, it's on display until January 2nd. President Biden will light the national tree in Washington, D.C. at 5.30 p.m. Eastern Time. That's it for the show. Thanks for joining us. Be sure to connect with me on Instagram and Twitter at Allison Kosick. Connect the world with Betty Ander- Becky Anderson is next. I'll see you soon. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.